What's going on, everybody? Welcome to officially episode 200 of the Core Consults RX podcast. You guys have been hearing Cole and I talk down, uh, do the countdown for what, six months straight? Probably every episode? at least a year we've been So you've down. been very annoyed by that. But here we are finally, <laughs> and we are joined with our absolute favorite special guest, Dr. Wayne Wirt. Dr. Wirt, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, and it's glad to be here with you guys. We really appreciate you doing this uh, in the middle of the, the evening on a Tuesday. Yes. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Um, for those of you guys who are kind of just listening to us recently, uh, Dr. Burt was our special guest on episode 100, too, so we felt it was only fitting uh, if we get him on for episode 200. Yes. Um, and if you guys don't know Dr. Burt, his, his CV uh, alone from his career will, will literally make you um, feel like you've never accomplished much of him. <laughs> <laughs> He's done more in his career than I think most of us could ever dream of doing, so we're very excited to have him here. Um, so, Dr. Burt. How has things been lately just on your end in the College of Pharmacy? And I'm assuming, you know, even though you retired how many years ago? Essentially, technically? 13. 13 years ago, yet you still, you still go probably <laughs> still five fail- days a week. No, four days a week. Four I'm days. teaching four days a week. We're still failing retirement, but having fun. <laughs> still harassing students. The only thing you've ever failed is retirement. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure that's not it. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I mean, any, uh, anything new that, uh, in the school's you know, realm? We, we hope to move into our new building in November. Oh, wow. Is it that quick? Yes, that quick. Although I don't believe it until I see it. It (laughs) still looks like they got some work to do. So next month, basically. Yes, that's what we've been told. I was down there the other day, and it still looked like a construction site. It is. I guess guess (laughs) we'll see. Definitely. (laughs) But Dean Hall told us we had to have our offices ready to move by 1st of November. You're going to have a nice new office? I'm going to have an office. Nice. That's see that's how you know you had a good career. When you retired 13 years ago and they still put your a new office in the new building. <laughs> that's fantastic. So um that word you still doing uh uh, bar and Grill, I'm assuming. Yep, we do Bar and Grill, Dr. Bragg and I. And so Dr. Bragg has kind of taken over coordinating it, but uh, I still attend and I'm still doing part of the, the grilling of the students. And <laughs> I'm having fun learning something every day and having fun doing it. The uh, I, I mean, that was probably my biggest aha moment, I think, of all of farm school was sitting in, in Bar and Grill and realizing like some of the whys behind the pharmacotherapy regimens and whatnot and like the actual evidence. And so uh, for those of you who don't know, Bar and Grill is basically where you go and present a patient case that you're hoping is going to last 20 minutes. And then Dr. Ward, Dr. Brad grill you for like an hour and a half <laughs> and figure out what, uh, where the holes in your game are. And you, you, you learned my favorite three letter word. Why? Why? <laughs> I still do that. Absolutely. No, it's great. I mean, it, I learned a ton from sitting in those, those uh, sessions. Um, have you had any new uh, like stories as far as students trying to get pull a fast one or get out of something or anything? You've had a couple of over the years over I'm the sure. years yes but not the best one is still the one that i can remember where the student made up a disease that didn't exist <laughs> and presented a disease and start i started asking questions and everybody around the table who was in on it started to look and laugh a little bit and all of a sudden i said you got you guys are trying to take one over on me, <laughs> and it was yes. He okay, was, so he wasn't actually trying to pass. He was trying. He was trying to be funny. He was seeing. Yes. He was seeing if he could get a by you. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> so nothing, nothing like that. Sense. I was too intimidated by bar and grill to even think about doing something like that. But maybe if I had done a couple, I would have try, <laughs> yes. tried to pull a fast one. What's funny is I'll still uh, I'll get students you know on rotation with me, and they're like, that's the thing, like grand, grand rounds, which is probably one of the easiest things you could do as far as a, a 30 minute talk or whatever it is. But then bar and grill too. They talk about that as if it is, 
like Navy SEAL training. It's like the, <laughs> there's three things your fourth year. There's the Grand Rounds, the Naplex, and the Bar and Grill. Those are the three big things you have <laughs> to go, have to prepare yeah, Oh, no, this dissertation I'm presenting Bar and Grill. Like, and why, and why what's is... funny is it's not like y'all are demeaning or making anybody no. feel bad. It's you're just probably the nicest people it's you could It's nicest people you could have doing it. So the grilling is not so much like a, a negative grilling. It's just they're going to they're gonna figure out what you know and what you don't know. And if we if you don't know it, it comes through. Exactly. <laughs> Very exactly. quickly. Yes. <laughs> That's why we also do Oskleys and Oskies anymore one-on-one so that unless you know it, uh, you don't yeah. get through. Right. For sure. Right. Hey, how did Bar and Grill start? How did you come up with that? I'm assuming, uh, did, you, did you just come up with it one, one year? Or? Bar and Grill started back in 1979 when I was a junior faculty member at West Virginia University in the Department of Family Medicine and College of Pharmacy. And I was in family medicine, but I was in charge of students on the internal medicine rotation. So I would meet with the students every morning before they went on rounds and go over their patients. And that's really what started Bar and Grill. I had them present the patient to me. I went through it with them and started asking them questions so they could be prepared for rounds. And that's where Bar and Grill got its start almost 50 years ago now. So it was just a natural clinical exercise. It is. That ended up being... Uh, Very uh, useful, useful for me and hopefully for the student. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, so when when did it trans like kind of transform into a, where they actually came in and sat and presented cases as like a group? When that started was actually when I came here in 1979 uh, when I started here at MUSC. 1979. On the faculty and... I did the same thing for my students in family medicine because we also did it with the physicians. Mm. So the residents who were in the department would present their cases, and we called it checkout rounds at the end of the day. So they would come in and present patients to the attending, and my PharmD students and I were there. And that's how I got started in family medicine here. And then I would take my students on rotation and do the same thing and ask them to present their cases they were seeing in clinic that day. And I'd start asking them questions. And my whole key to success for 50 years has been able to explain to the physician who asked me a question the answer why. Mm -hmm. It's not to answer the question, but to give them the information so they understand why instead of just answering the question. And and it also takes away that whole, well... You know, I, you know, the attitude of like, oh, I'm the drug expert. Just take my word for it. Right. All that kind of thing and age and all that stuff that can play a factor into someone taking your opinion. <laughs> when you can explain the why and realize it's not, this is not just my opinion on something. This is actually what people much more than me came up with. It makes a, a big, big difference, I and think. And one of my physician colleagues who was across the hall from me in family medicine, Dr. Ben Goodman at the time, was a residency director. And he would come in and uh, after grant, after checkout rounds, I'd go back and I'd either go to the library or go to my office and I'd make copies of the documentation for what I had talked about in checkout rounds. And then I'd give it, give it back to him or to the residents who were there asking the question. And Ben called me a Xerox machine on wheels. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he finally, within, within three months, he went to the department chairman and said, you got to give this guy an appointment in our department, not just in pharmacy, because he means a lot to this department. And while I was there, I won the what they called the Golden Oyster Award several times for clinical pearls that yeah. were given by the residents nice. in family medicine. Oh, that's awesome. And it's awesome. because of answering the question why yeah. right. and providing the documentation. I remember similarly when I was on uh, rotation with Dr. Bragg 
anytime something would come up in rounds that had data behind it or he was explaining it or we were explaining it, the um, residents and the physicians would comment that shortly after they get an email from Dr. Bragg with all the yeah, studies that they the were studies. talking about and everything, that everything, just a whole bunch of reading for them to do at homework after they had rounds. And in my days, we didn't have electronics, right. so I, didn't, I couldn't right. email. I had to give them a hard copy, and most of the time I had to walk over to the library to pull the article, make a copy, and then bring it back. <laughs> so I didn't have a chance to do what I can do today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, talk a little bit closer to work. Okay. Um, you can pull it closer if you want. Okay. I think most. Um, so, I, I mean, that's. That, have you always kind of had that mindset of like wanting to understand why things work or why things are? Is that since you were a kid? Has that kind of been something that's your, the way your brain's worked? If I don't understand why, I can't really answer the question. And so I want to always know why. And the good news is you got to keep up with the why because it changes from time to time. It's not always the same. Right. Or in medicine every week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, would you consider yourself like a competitive person? A little bit, but not too much. No, I just, because I feel like there's a lot of people that initially have that why, like the question of why, but then the, the actual work that it takes to put in to go and actually find out the why is what, I want to know why. And I, I think that's what's different between you that actually goes and does it versus <laughs> someone that's like, ah, I mean, I just, I'll just wonder, <laughs> but it's know. been a job and a hobby. I've been blessed by the good Lord with a job. I consider my hobby for 50 years. Yeah. That's awesome. So have you found that explaining the why and giving recommendations that way has been relatively foolproof as far as your interprofessional relationship? Or can you think of any instances where a colleague, whether a physician or pharmacist just did not want to take your recommendation, no matter how, how well you explained it? Dr. Goodman was one I had to convince. Well, Dr. And, Goodman. Yep, and Dr. Goodman is still one of my better friends. He's in Hickory, North Carolina. He's still a family doc. But uh, he, would, he would go back to his office, and he'd, he'd look and say, is what he said true? And he'd go dig on his own to try and find something to get me on. <laughs> something he <something> missed, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious, and it was fun, and it really, we're still best friends to this day. Good. So when you when you got the appointment at the family medicine for the actual department versus yeah. just the college of pharmacy, were you the first PharmD to ever be in that position? In family medicine, yes. And at that time, I mean, the PharmD in general wasn't something that was widely done. So I mean, in the country, I mean, how many there were PharmDs many were were like in a family medicine? There were a department? handful. Doctor Dennis Helling up at Iowa, uh, probably. That's the only other one I can think of at the time who was doing it when I was first starting out. So how was that? Very, very few. Like walking into a department of MDs and you're the first, like one of the first people ever. They didn't know what to expect and what to do with me. Yeah. I was, (laughs) (laughs) were they they like, you know, pretty like welcoming or was it kind of like, what in the heck does this guy? They were welcoming because I was there. I went on rounds. I went to checkout rounds. I went to conferences. I gave a noon conference once a month in the department that was drug related and I was a resource. Mm -hmm. So I was there to help them understand what they were doing and why. So was it pretty, like pretty right away that they kind of realized that? It was, it was, it's the key to my success. No question about it. And, and so how, how has it shifted from, you know, that time frame to, I mean, obviously now PharmDs are much more prevalent in various clinical roles. Um, what, what's been, I guess, your biggest surprise or, or I guess your, yeah, I guess, yeah, surprise of like how you, things have transitioned. 
that we've still got a long way to go because most pharmacists are still not doing what they need to do to can make those connections with the patients and the other providers. There's lots of opportunity for us to do more. And too many pharmacists are tied to the prescription and not to the clinical arena or to patient care. Yeah. So I still wish we could move further ahead faster. What do you think it's going to take to do that? Well, one of the things is we have to be recognized as a provider. Yeah. Provider status is still something we're still trying to work out. And that's been a real disappointment. We haven't been able to do that yet. What is the, like, I mean, I'm sure there's multiple barriers, but what is, the, what is the main, like, barriers that's been keeping that from happening? Is it the pushback from the medical side or? It's Congress. Congress. And basically, you know, nurse practitioners, dietitians, PTs, OTs, nutritionists, all those guys are providers under Medicare. And yeah. we're not. Yeah. We are not. We're the only healthcare provider out there that is not recognized as a provider by CMS under Medicare. And that's got to change. So why would they not? It's Congress. Why would they not want that? Because of money? They think it's money. But actually, if they were to do it, right. we can prove that we save on money. Yeah. Yeah. Just old school thinking that's just not changing. Yep. They just and see it's the... been that way for 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Have there, has there been any like programs? I think there's a couple, but like with it is like a dual degree of like farm DPA or something along those lines. There are several people who've done it, but uh, most of them, there's not that many of them out there. Yeah. Cause I feel like that's almost like you'd almost need that like initially to, to see the value from a uh, people who aren't in the medical field yep. and then make that transition. I mean, I've, I've joked with us several times about, I want to go back to PA school. I was telling them, cause since I teach there, especially, I hope I would get in. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you would. No, they'll reject you. You can still teach, but you, you, you can't be a PA. That'd be so embarrassing. <laughs> they need you, buddy. Yeah. They, they need you to teach what you're teaching. Right. Uh, I, um, I think that would be my, uh, if I won the lottery move. I'd go do that just to learn <laughs> the diagnostic side of things. You didn't need the cash anymore. Yeah. I don't want to do that because I don't have time. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's a full-time job keeping up with the drug therapy. Right. That, that is very you know true. That. Yeah. that is very true. Yeah, you got to worry about diagnostics. and <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I have more to memorize? <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. No, that's awesome. Um, so as far as, you know, the the keeping up with information and like, you know, kind of as things changing, I mean, obviously you've had to change tactics, I'm sure over the years. So like, how is it now keeping up with information? Do you feel like it's easier, even though there's a lot more of it or is it, is it harder because there's so much? There's much, much more to keep up with, but it's much easier to do with the technology we have today. Back when I started out, I used to have to go to the library and I used to have to get the journals I used to have to fill out a reprint request card or make a copy of the article on Xerox so I'd have it. And that's why I had so many files and my office has always been full of paper that I don't need to do today. But I had to do that and it took a huge amount of time to do that. And so I would, I'd subscribe to journals. Every week I'd go to the library and look at the new journals that had come out to see what's in there because otherwise you didn't know what was coming out. And then I got the current contents paper guide that I could go through and then I'd have to fill out a reprint request card. Sometimes you got the article, sometimes you didn't. And if you didn't, you had to go to the library and Xerox it anyway. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so every piece of paper, every article that I could read, I had to go find somewhere and I couldn't do it online because there wasn't anything online. Right. That sounds like a nightmare. It, it does. So <laughs> I'd from... say it was a lot harder back then, but it wasn't as broad as it is today. Right. Yeah. 
So and that's that, one of the reasons I don't keep up in certain areas like oncology, yeah. critical care. I don't do those things because it's not something that I'm involved with. Yeah, and it's just too much to keep up yes. with everything now. It's enough to keep up in the primary care arena. For sure. So from 1979 to now, that's something that's easier now is accessing that information and not having to go to the library and fill out yep. a reprint card. And all that. Is there anything, if you were just in the same practice today as you were in 1979, is there anything today that's more difficult than it was in 1979? Any bar any strange barriers that have arisen over time that would make your job more difficult now? Or is it just across the board an easier thing to it's do? It's pretty much across the board, except that we have more information coming out every day than we did back then. Yeah. Yeah. And back then, we didn't have a lot of the clinical trials that have good data. Right. So we had a lot of disease-oriented evidence, but not patient-oriented evidence that matter. Yeah. So most of the stuff in the old days was a doe, disease-oriented. So we know it lowered blood pressure, and we had a few trials. The first trial to show blood pressure reduction reduced events was the VA cooperative trial in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's, like, that's where that shift started to happen of like, who cares if it lowers the blood pressure if the person right. has an MI a couple years later? We didn't right. really do anything. And with diabetes, all those things we didn't have data on. Heart failure, we didn't have the data we have today. What was like the catalyst behind that? Is there a certain like group or person that was like kind of like, hey, we should probably not just focus on... Well, one of the catalysts that made the VA, I mean the uh, FDA make their mind change to require patients with diabetes in clinical trials to show outcomes was the data we had with uh, some of the old drugs like Glibra, the sulfonylureas, And then the rosiglitazone trial that showed while it lowered A1C, it looked like it might have increased cardiac events. So the FDA put in a requirement, you got to look at cardiovascular outcomes. Mm. And even before that, when it came to osteoporosis, we had some drugs that were out there. We were using fluoride because it built bone, but it increased fracture risk. So the FDA put a requirement in. You had to show that your drug reduced fractures in order to get it approved for osteoporosis. Mm. Before that, you just had to show bone mineral density. Disease-oriented evidence again. Really thick, brittle bones. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, those are things that actually changed the practice and all those things I've seen in my career. Uh, yeah, that's... Because, I, you know, I guess we take it for granted now because it's like now it's just commonplace to... Well, of course we have to show that Right, it's doing something from a patient perspective, which, which didn't in the old days. Yeah, if we don't, if we don't see superiority to a another drug that we know reduces events, then we're disappointed. If it's just not inferiority, we're like, eh, nah. you know, yeah. in the old days, <laughs> there was, were no comparisons. Yeah. Everything was just placebo controlled with only disease oriented evidence, no outcomes at all. Well, and I guess I mean, was that just because they were the companies were scared to put their drug up against something else? Is I think they still are from that standpoint. I mean, that's we don't see yeah. that yet today. Yep. It, so here, this is random. This is random, but how come with like the GLP ones, like we saw, like that's one of the only classes that I can kind of think of that actually did a lot of head-to-head -head comparisons in the same class. Is there a reason why that group in particular that you know of that went head-to-head, -head, or they're just that confident? I think they were the ones that have the, done the, those have been the ones that likely have lower A1Cs, more weight loss. So you'll see some of those, just like the one we just had come out, the Manjaro. Mm -hmm. uh, basically went head-to-head -head with Ozempic and showed greater A1C reduction, greater weight loss because they thought they would do that. Yeah. So if they can show it, they're going to do it if they are confident right. in it. Yeah. you got to be confident, though, because it's you risky. you got to be confident. So and they, there was one that they backfired. Obiglutide did that, too, didn't they? They mm -hmm. uh, went head-to-head -head with what, Victoza. And one of the statins 
you know, our friends at BMS with Pravis Call, Pravastatin did the Prove It trial, Timmy 22 trial, and they compared 40 of Prava to 80 of Atorva head to head for two years in people with acute coronary syndrome. And they did it saying, we believe that our drug has pleiotropic effects that Atorva is not going to have. We know it's going to not lower LDL as much, but we're going to reduce events. They're not. And Oops. they lost. <laughs> Whoops. <Yep. laughs> with a number need treat, I think, of 26 at two years. And that's the, that's the shortest statin trial we have. Yeah. Jeez. And it was head-to-head, 40 of Prava, 80 of Atorva. So people, somebody got fired for setting that. <laughs> well, they did it at the end of the patent life. Got okay. <laughs> so yeah. they, they didn't, didn't do care. it before the patent yeah. was ready to run out. Right. <laughs> uh, that so sense. that's why they call it the prover trial. We're going to prove to you it's our drug superior. Yeah. Well, and they lost. <laughs> that's so, pretty funny. <laughs> so your world is primary care. And in pharmacy school, it, primary care disease states are heavily emphasized. Diabetes, hypertension, um, heart failure, COPD, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so that's where we see a lot of am care pharmacists practicing outpatient. There are some am care pharmacists and specialty Yep. Specialist disease states as well. Some, but it, it's definitely more heavily primary care. Do you think that there's room in specialty disease states to have Amcare pharmacists? And do you think that's kind of where it's no going? Question. Or? No question. You've got the HIV pharmacists, you've got people in oncology, oncology do outpatient. Yep. And those are not for me. I'm not I don't get involved in that. Hep C or all these kind of things are out there, but right now I'm a, a generalist primary care guy. Yep. yep. Is is if you had let's say Tomorrow, for some reason, you were no longer allowed to do primary care and you had to pick a specialty, what would it be? Nothing. Nothing? <laughs> Retired. I'd, I'd quit. I don't, believe, I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> you'd quit for two days and then you'd be like, all right, I'll pick something. Well, over the years, I've liked ID, I've liked cardiology, I've liked endocrinology, but I'm still a primary care guy. I would say, I feel like in car- your, cardio- your knowledge of cardiology, at least from you know the evidence you know, base standpoint is pretty high level. Um, yeah, I mean, when we're doing bar and grill, you go pretty in depth with the students that are from the heart failure clinics and stuff like that. So, I mean, I think cardiology would probably be a breeze for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I feel, I feel like a fish out of water. Do, do you like the, I guess the fact that it's so broad with primary care that you get to do a little bit of everything? Is that yep. what's appealing? And I like working with family docs or in general internists because they're used to going to other people. They're, they don't have the broad knowledge. Even though it's a broad knowledge, they have some things they need to know and want to know and may not know where to go to get it. So we're there to really yeah, help them. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Instead of words, the specialists are so yeah, I'm zeroed not, in. I'm on... not likely to tell a cardiologist how to treat a patient with heart failure very often. But if you've got a primary care guy who's following somebody with heart failure, they may not be familiar with all the nuances and the things that they might need to consider. Yeah. Well, or you can, I'll take you to one of our clinics in Walterboro. You might meet some cardiologists out there that <laughs> would surprise you. <laughs> they might not be, uh, they might use your help. Yeah, I've only worked in an academic medical center environment. Oh, yeah. uh, there's some different environments out there. I'll yeah. tell you that. <laughs> I've seen some of them, but. Mm. Yeah, there's some times where I go, oh, no. <laughs> Um, so yeah, as far as, uh, you know, the, how things have transitioned, kind of going back to that, if you had to go back or, or I guess if you were starting over from today, 2022, you're back this, you know, same age when you finished farm school residency, all that, is there anything you would do different strategy wise for your career? Obviously still being a clinical pharmacist, but was there anything you would do differently given today's modern technology and all that? Actually, I've thought about it a lot and I would relive it all over again. I wouldn't change a thing. 
That's awesome. That's yep. I don't think a lot of people can say that. It's been my job and hobby, and I have no regrets, none whatsoever. That's awesome. It's great. I had an opportunity to do something. My father-in-law had a business and asked if I wanted to come into the business, and uh, I thought about it. I thought about going to medical school. And Did said, you? No, and I didn't. Said, nope, I can't do this. This is what I was called to do, and I'm still going to do it. Was the medical school like later after, I mean, after you yeah. had been a pharmacy yep. for a little bit? Yep. Ah. The, the, uh, what, what about as far as, I guess, kind of like what we're doing now with the podcast and it's very easy to reach people now. Like you don't have to necessarily go to one conference a year. Right. Um, have you ever thought about doing anything like with bar and grill or anything like that and actually making it available for the few, except for the few lucky people at MUSA? For- I've thought about it, but I don't know. I don't have the technology skills. I'm not a technocrat. And I also, uh, do so many other things. I'm still doing 50 or 60 CE lectures a year. Are you and really? Most of those are to physician groups. So I'm still doing a lot of that kind of stuff and uh, having fun doing that too. And didn't, speaking of, didn't you win an award uh, for the from the American College of Physicians? Yeah, last year in October, and I'm speaking there in two weeks at their meeting this year, uh, I won the uh, an award for physicians and... It was for outstanding uh, research and education in internal medicine by the Academy of uh, American College of Physicians, South Carolina chapter, and I'm the first and only non-physician <laughs> to win the award. And that, I had no idea I was getting it until I got there. Really? Yeah. So it was oh, really very nice. With it? Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. it was very very nice. I mean, that's I mean, that's got to feel pretty <laughs> incredible, right? I mean, it's this is an award for physicians. However. <laughs> We're making an, an, an exception. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty, pretty incredible. Um, so uh, is there, what else is on your radar as far as the career goes? Is there anything in particular you're shooting for right now as far as? I want to keep going as long as I can doing what I'm doing. Just doing I don't want to change anything. Zip. Still teaching, uh, still lecturing, CE, still doing bar and grill. Still doing some consulting, still serving as a pharmacy consultant at Barry Ryan's Free Clinic, still serving on a couple of pharmacy and therapeutics committees, so I'm still having fun, even so, though I failed retirement. So for those of you who are complaining about not having enough time <laughs> in your day. The busiest retirement I've ever heard of. And yeah. still feeding the homeless two nights a week. In there you that's go. What you, were, you were there earlier today, right? Before yeah, you came that's here? That's where I was. The, uh, yeah, me and Mike are doing nothing. He's over there feeding, <laughs> feeding, the, feeding the homeless. The uh, in, in uh, can we talk about boxing real quick? Yeah, you still doing boxing? I'm still, I was there today too. Hey, wow. I had a go. one hour uh session, rock steady boxing for Parkinson's disease. I've been doing it six and a half years, and I go three days a week before the uh pandemic, it was four days a week. Then we came back, we did it online two days a week during the pandemic. When we came back, it was two days a week, it's now back to three. I wish it were back to four. But we had 21 people in the class today. We all have Parkinson's disease. And about half of us have been together for six and a half years. Really? It's a real family. That's awesome. And so we do uh, rock steady boxing for Parkinson's. And on top of that, I got asked to serve on their medical advisory board for the national organization recently. So really? I just joined them. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm the only pharmacist and the only person with Parkinson's is on the advisory board. Oh, wow. <laughs> so. That's surprising. Yeah. <laughs> And that's for the whole like nationwide rock steady. Yep, that's pretty cool. Is it? I know initially you had said it, it 
you feel like it had done more for like your tremor and it's and better than, than the drug any, therapy. Really? Still, yes. still think the same. That's a, that's fantastic. Before I started doing it, I had fallen three times a year before I started since I've been doing, it, I haven't fallen a single time. Wow. That is good. Six and a half to, years. Yeah. I used to walk step to over. I used to not swing my arms when I walk. All those things are back. I'm slowing down a little bit and my balance is not great, but Otherwise, I'm doing great, and I'm the loudmouth in the group. So I'm the cheerleader for the whole group. Because <laughs> right. we awesome. usually get soft-spoken. Mm-hmm. Not this kid. Not you. It's the only <laughs> thing that works. Everything else in my body has quit working, but my voice is still working. <laughs> I need a new body otherwise. Complete re- 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 and, rehaul. And we'll you t- use it a lot for the lectures and the CEs yeah. and everything. We'll talk to Elon Musk to see what we can do. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome that still to this day it's been the most influential part of the regiment and yeah i'm on leave it open carve it open but it's not as good as the boxing wow wow shout out cody for bringing rocksteady boxing to uh charleston yep is anybody else doing it in charleston yeah there's actually six places is there that many between uh mount pleasant downtown somerville nexton north charleston there's six programs musc has one do that in the wellness center and we had the other one downtown uh Rock Steady Boxing with Grit Box Fitness. The Grit Box closed the place where we were doing it, and they're renting a space at uh, O2 Fitness West Ashley. So that's where we're doing. That's where we've gotcha. been since last fall. That's cool. Man, that's great. Grit Box was number one getting into Charleston, I believe. Right? Yep, yep. They were the first one. That's very cool. It's a that's a good. Pro- I'm surprised. Like I feel like you don't hear nearly enough about it with those kind of results that yep. people are getting. We'll have to give him. Uh, we'll have to get Cody on here. I've talked to him about that a yes. long time ago. That'd be cool. So, Doctor Ward, what's got you the most excited about in the pharmacotherapy world nowadays? Anything new on the horizon that we need to be aware of? I'm not sure about new on the horizon, but there are some opportunities that we need to pursue to get better patient outcomes. We're not using the right drugs, and we're not using the appropriate doses. We're not keeping people on therapy uh, that make a huge difference in outcomes. So I think that's really the one thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about. Yeah, let's do it. Is there anything, um, any specific disease state drugs that you oh, see yeah, that yeah, are most egregious? Oh, yeah. Uh, did you guys see the CHAMP heart failure registry? Was it for the, uh, that was a couple of years ago? Or is it, it was uh, published in American Journal of Cardiology in, uh, back in 2019, 19. 2018. It was, it was one of those like 1%. Of like cardiologists have the patients on targeted. Mm. These are cardiologists and internists, and they looked at at the time guideline directed medical therapy, which was three drugs: mm-hmm. the Arni, the Entresto, Secubitril, Valsartan, beta blocker, and a aldosterone uh, aldosterone antagonist. Before we had the SGLT two, so now we have four drugs in it. But they looked at those, and only one percent of these 5,000 plus patients in this database were on guideline-directed therapy at target doses. Wow. And 100%. these are cardiologists too? Yes. Wow. So I can cardiologists. imagine how, slow, how low that number would be. When you put the fourth care. drug on. Yeah, and you put the, yeah, you put the fourth twos. drug on. And then there was a recent uh, presentation this summer that looks at over 4,000... Medicare plans around the country, the entire country, in patients with heart failure. And what they found is that the average copay for Entresto is $45 a month. 
the average copay for an SGLT2, if they don't have a prior authorization, is $45 a month. So the average out-of-pocket cost for a Medicare patient with heart failure is over $2,000 a year just for those heart failure drugs. Mm. And if they're only getting $1,500 a month, are they going right. to spend that as part of their... Right. So what are they doing? They're not taking them. Right. Yeah. And they're not getting them. And part of that, I blame the insurance company because they should give those drugs to these people at a zero copay or the lowest copay, the generic copay, because it's still number one or number two as far as cost to the healthcare system if they have heart failure. Right. It's the number one driver for our Medicare population. And we have drugs that we know make a difference. And those drugs are cheap compared to what it costs to hospitalize these mm -hmm. patients right. and for their visits and stuff. So we shouldn't put a roadblock in the way. And that's what this article, this paper suggested. And it's over 4,000 plans. Mm. Over 99.1% have it at tier three or higher for the SGLT2, and 98% have the ARNI in a tier three or greater. Jeez. There's no excuse for that. No, it's very short-sighted, really. It I is. mean, if, if they had you on their board, then they would know that they'd end up saving money in the long run by making the drugs cheaper. <sighs> That's, it's, yeah. it's really frustrating when you stop and think about it. Yeah. And I, I think it's because it, it's, you know, being in a FQHC for the last four years, you know, like we have, for example, Jardians for like $8 for a cash price. Right. But then they do such a, you know, poor job of like kind of getting the word out that it's like the people who could benefit from that as well, who are on a fixed income and Medicare patients, instead of becoming, you know, getting into our system because it's a closed pharmacy, getting yep. in our system and getting those meds, you know, the cardiologist isn't going to know that we have those things available. So that when it, we had a patient that came to us randomly one time who was seeing cardiology and I brought up the, you know, jars because I saw her, her heferf on her profile and she's like, oh, my cardiologist actually wanted to do that, but we couldn't afford it. And I was like, you know, we have that for like eight bucks here. So we got her on it and like I saw her four weeks later for again, unrelated thing. You know, it was, I think it was diabetes, I guess. And, um, and she's like, I feel great. Like I've, you know, I feel like my, um, I'm able to you know breathe so much better walk into the mailbox and all this. And it was like, she had no idea. It was right down the street and she could have gotten yes. it the whole time. So I don't know how it's, there's gotta be a better way of getting the That's word out. That's why I say that we have an opportunity that we're not taking full advantage of to encourage people to do the right thing for the right reason. Are there any, there's a lot of, uh, the patient assistance programs as well, that if, if the patient's copay, even if it's, if it's Medicare, if it's too high, they'll still work with the patient. Isn't that right? It's not a copay assistance, but it's like, yeah. Cause you can't, the coupon cards the, don't work with, right. the, with the federal programs, but they can get enrolled in the program that they take the cost of the med. Right. And there's some right. of them that do that. There are some, but again, a lot of the, uh, practices that would have to help them do it right. are not willing to spend the time and effort to get it done. Right. They'd have to have the practices would have to have the bandwidth to do it. And I, I have a lot of experience with those. And I can say that if it was a $45 copay, while that might not be something that the patient wants to pay for, you usually have to submit financial information and sometimes a, a letter of financial hardship saying why you couldn't afford the copay. And if it was 90 and they saw that they're bringing in 1500, even if it unless they could show that it was like a substantially over their income, they might not even approve them for it, mm. which is unfortunate. So, it is yeah. because there's really no reason we shouldn't make these drugs available to especially these people who are on a fixed income on social security, the average social security payments, $1,500 a month. Yep. Mm. Yep. And that so many people, that's the only income they have yep. once they retire. 
Yep. So how can pharmacists get involved and actually play a role in fixing that problem? Well, one of the things we need to be an advocate with uh, uh, our pharmacy associations when it comes to Washington and to Medicare, because Medicare could make a change in that regard. So they could, they could actually do something with it, just like they did when they wrote the Medicare Part D legislation, but it was written by the pharma lobby. Mm. So you could not exclude certain drug classes based on how it was written, and the government could not negotiate discounts from the industry. They had to just accept what was in the, in the plan, and they tied everybody's hands unless Congress makes a change. Yep. It looks like, and I don't want to get too political, it looks like our current group up there, one one half of the House is willing to do something, the other half is not, and they block it. Yep. Mm. And we haven't seen a significant change, and it needs to change. Jeez. And then the other thing is that there are so many opportunities for us to make some recommendations to our providers of our patients when it comes to getting these drugs used appropriately. Mm-hmm. And I give you an example with the beta blockers. With now using SGLT2 and an Arnie and Tresto, the blood pressure is likely to be lower. Mm-hmm. And if you want to look at a beta blocker and the patient's on Carvedilol, mm-hmm. we need to get them off Carvedilol and switch them over to something else, either metoprolol succinate or bisoprolol. Mm-hmm. And that's not happening either. Yep. And then we're not pushing the doses. And we have great data showing at least with the ACE, ARB, and ARNI, and beta blockers, if you hit the target dose, you improve cardiac output and reduce mortality. Mm-hmm. And I don't see anybody hardly at all on target doses of some of these drugs. Yeah, a lot of them aren't even close. No, they're not. And we know it makes a huge difference. So we could get much better outcomes if we were to be more of advocates for appropriate drugs and appropriate doses. Yep. And I think going back to the why, you know, because people who are and I shouldn't say every clinician, there's probably plenty of clinicians that know this, but, you know, clinicians who are thinking beta blocker, they just lump carvedilol in with that instead yep. of thinking of it as an alpha beta with much better blood pressure lowering ability. Like and explaining that why why we would want to switch to metoprolol yes. or bisoprolol, I think is where, again, kind of just going back to that is why it's important to explain that and actually sticks versus like, oh, you should use this. If one. they understand why it sticks. Yeah. And you can also better explain it if you understand why first. Right. If you don't understand why, well, we got three. They, they don't prefer one over another in the guidelines. Right. But there ought to be... Some differences. More differences yeah. that are even outlined in the guidelines than are there right now. Absolutely. Yep. COPD. If you've got COPD yeah. or a smoker or you've got asthma, you ought to be on bisoprolol. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, I think that's another thing. People are, oh, it's selective. Yeah, but how selective? Yeah, fourteen to one versus two to one. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just it's a, the little nuances like that. I think are the the what separates. And people. physicians don't know that. Yeah, yeah. And it's a and I mean a not, the, not to excuse anything, but um, I mean it, it is a lot for the physician to keep up with, which is why we're and they to be were there never as a taught it right, and they never right. taught it. So that's why we need to know and to be a resource to them in those instances. So that's where I think we have lots of still good opportunities. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Dr. Burrell, well, it's getting late, so I won't keep you too much longer. Um, again, we appreciate you doing this with us. Um, well, let me give you one more. That no, please. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Hey, hey we, we can talk all night okay. if you want. I just don't want to keep you up <laughs> no, too late. You're, you're not. <laughs> there was another study that came out this year in JAMA, internal medicine, and it looked at patients who've had either an MI, a stroke, or a peripheral arterial disease, 
And at a point in time, they're all patients, and there's over over six six hundred thousand patients in the database. You know what percentage of these patients are on a high intensity statin? I'm going to guess five. No, it's twenty five percent. Okay. How many are on no statin? How many are on no statin? Probably fifteen. Fifty percent are not on any statin. And it's one of the indicators from CMS. Yeah. Fifty yeah, percent so... are not taking a statin at all. Well, they that's... can't. They can't tolerate it, according to them. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that must. I, they took it for one second and realized. And so many of them are not on the target dose because it, they're afraid to titrate it up. Yeah. Therapeutic inertia is alive and well in this country. So yeah. I say. Yeah, well, I mean, we, I have that conversation all the time about a tour of a forty versus eighty, and I'm like, why? Why do we? Why are we sorry? We starting at forty, and they'll be like, oh, I just titrate. I'm like, you don't have to. No, they didn't do it in any of the trials. All the studies are with 80. <laughs> and you're not likely to do it. Right. And that's, and that's very true. I mean, like, with you know, my, even I, I'm, I'm guilty of that sometimes. And my patient load is way mm. less than some of the primary care physicians. It's just you get cranking through an appointment and it's easy to overlook something. Oh, blood pressure's good. We don't need to bump up the dose. Yep. You know, and I mean, yeah, target doses are kind of the key to a lot of disease states. Yeah, it, and we're not doing them. And your experience with the myalgia thing. What do you think is the the biggest bear? I mean, what what are the patients Just thinking? Because I nocebo effect. Well, I mean, like I I came out of school thinking like oh, it's no it's nothing you know it's not significant like everybody gets that. But then I've just heard so many people talk about it. Say they had it, their friends had it, such and such had it. Do you think it just everybody starts talking about it and they kind of get it in their head that it's a thing? And if then, you look at the data from Cleveland Clinic and also from Harvard. Over 90% of patients who complain of muscle aches and pains can eventually get on and take and tolerate a statin. And the risk of rhabdo with the statins we use today, since we're not pushing the dose of Simva and Lova mm-hmm. or the highest dose of Rasuva, is minimal to none. And I think that, so I, I guess it's twofold from the physician standpoint. One, the patient's complaining about it, so they just stop it. But two, they probably have an inappropriate fear of the rhabdo that they shouldn't have. Yep. And, and we need to give them a realistic expectation. If it happens, we can start it. We can titrate you more slowly. We right. can switch statins. But we need you to have it on it because there's not any other good alternatives right. that are going to reduce your risk like a statin is. I, I think that even from a pharmacist's perspective, frequently when they're doing a first counseling on that, they might say, if you have any muscle aches and pains, let us know You know, immediately and kind of freak them out about it too. And then they let them know and then it gets taken off and now they have a contraindication to a statin forever. Yep. And the other thing, we've changed the label over the years with the liver function monitoring. Mm -hmm. We don't Mm -hmm. have to worry about that anymore. They're no longer contraindicated in pregnancy. All those things have changed and people have thought these are things that are cast in concrete and we have to worry about it. And we don't. Right. Well, I think, feel like, you know, statins have such a large amount of data showing their outcomes that it's like it doesn't really make sense as to like why we wouldn't push them harder right and i think you're going to see i've been told by a friend of mine who is uh, the president of the national lipid association dr joe sassine from colorado that the american college of cardiology and the american heart association are going to reissue a new ldl goal for people with disease to co exist with the uh ACC. ACC. Yep, the ACE guidelines, less than 55. Are they going to push it? Yeah, they're going to push it down because if you look at the cholesterol clinical trialist group, the lower the LDL, the lower the event rate. Wow. 
I there is no such thing as too low an LDL. And yeah. that's the that's the key too. I think that my uh, LDL is seventeen. <laughs> there you go, <laughs> and, and you're proud hopefully, of it. And hopefully, I don't have cognitive impairment. I don't with know. an LDL of seventeen had, for if, the last eight years. If you have if you have cognitive impairment, we're all in trouble. Yeah, I, I think you're you're going to be a good case study for the low LDL that it does not de- does not impair your your cognition. Uh, so do you think we'll see more of the PCSK9s then if they're, everybody's trying to be pushed lower? Do you think the high-intensity statins, if it was the used appropriately? The problem is that they're, the way they have to be used and the cost, and so they're, not, they're yeah. not being uh, made available readily. Yeah. And in Clozerin now, we've also got yeah. that one that's less frequent, but mm-hmm. it's $5,000 a year, yep. Yep. and we don't have outcome data yet. Right. Yep. What do you think the, with the bimbidoic acid, do you think the outcome data is? Because it's supposed to come out this year, I believe. It is, but it's only in combination with a statin is not going to be by itself and i don't think they're going to show a difference you don't think so i mm. think well the ldl reduction is not quite as good as it is with uh Zetimab. yeah and that one in the improvement trial didn't show a difference at five years Took seven. To go to seven <laughs> and then it's only a two percent absolute risk reduction in non-fatal mi only so Whoops. i think that's going to be the same thing with bepidoic acid mm. i don't think you're going to show the benefit I the benefits there with EPA. Yeah. Adding that to a statin if triglycerides are elevated. Yeah. And most people are not aware, but there are four trials that used EPA and all of them have positive outcomes. Mm. And then there are four trials that use the combination DHA EPA combo. None of them have positive outcomes. So and what's the brand name for that? Not again? even just uh Vesipa. Vesipa. So you're talking about the icosapentethyl right. derivative specifically. That's the one that's been shown in four different trials. The Jealous trial, the Cherry trial, the Reduce It trial, and there's one more I forget. And then there were four trials, including the biggest one, the Strength trial, that showed no difference adding the combination at four grams a day to a statin. Mm-hmm. And that was done by Steve Nissen at Cleveland Clinic. He designed that trial and stopped it early. Well, so, isn't he the one that did Precision too? The, yeah. Yes. The Telecoxib trial? Yep. That's Dr. We're doing Nissen. we're doing ortho uh, or um, OA uh, with my PA students right now. So oh, okay. I, we, we went through precision yeah. in class. So you're saying if my if I'm a, a manager of a retail pharmacy and my boss tells me to push these OTC um, <laughs> uh, fish oil supplements, I should not push those OTC fish oil supplements. Nope. There you should go. Not. Prescription only. Yep. Vasepa. We can we can be uh, yeah, the, an or there's I think there are two generics. Oh, for generics. Yep. Yeah, there's yeah. generics. There's two EPA generics. Now, one of the pushback that some, the acosapentethyl specifically has gotten is like, especially like in the reducer trial where they used um, mineral, mineral oil. oil as the placebo. Do you think there's any like you know? Well, weight, if you don't believe that? that, look at Jealous. Look at Cherry. Look at the others. There's three tr- additional. Did, did they trials. use a different placebo? Yeah. Oh, okay. So that so that argument's really only for the reducer trial. Right. Gotcha. So that's why I don't I don't think that that's going to hold water. There's people putting a lot of emphasis on that whole, and I don't know if they're sponsored by their the competitors. You know, the competitors. <laughs> I mean, nowadays, unfortunately, you have to almost kind of think like that. Imagine yep. I'm sure they had some choices as to the placebo, and imagine being the guy who signed off on mineral oil and didn't realize it'd be such a controversy right. after. And strength trial used corn oil mm, as no. their placebo. And it showed no difference versus placebo. I guess they couldn't put water in that thing because it's not <laughs> it's not viscous enough. Yeah, that's it, yeah, that's a whole other thing with uh, clinical trials and how they're done. Like you really got to look into the nitty gritty. It, apparently, you can't just read the abstract. No. What? <laughs> Sorry to say, contrary to possibility. It's, got, it's gotten me this far. <laughs> I don't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> 
I know you guys better than that. <laughs> no, I will say though, I feel like I, 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 that's one of the things you taught me along the way. It was like kind of seeing, I remember the first time you asked me one time, you know, well, I was, you know, I was so proud of myself because I like quoted some trial. Oh, that we could do this based on that trial. And you said, would your patients be included in that trial? And I was like, Oh, no. I don't know. <laughs> I have no. I don't think so. Now that you say that, and, and it just got me thinking, like, oh yeah, we just you know say these things, or like, oh, this is what the guidelines say, but how that was actually interpreted in the studies and then included and excluded and whatnot is a big, big deal. Yep. So yeah, anything else out of word as far as this got you excited? Anything else? Well, there's lots of other things, but <laughs> I don't want to. I don't, want, I don't want to keep you guys longer than I have to. We'll, Any, have, to, we'll have to wait till episode three hundred for the rest <laughs> of yeah. <laughs> Any uh, any new drugs coming out there? Like you're like this is gonna be a game changer. I think Manjaro is going to be a game changer. Yeah, yeah, that thing is great. Yep. I mean, the weight loss of 25. percent Yep. So in somebody's 200 pounds, that's 50 pounds. Yeah. Yep. It's I crazy. mean that that's I mean, as good as surgery. We're already seeing them used a fair amount more. Yeah. I mean, at least I am for weight loss, and so I'm sure. That I was going to say take yeah, the we've, cake. we've had patients that are like they're completely controlled, but we're switching to Manjaro just for the weight loss benefit. And the good news is they have the published data. If you don't even have to have diabetes, that it still causes right. a weight loss and yep. it doesn't lower your A1C. Yeah. So it's a great drug, and if you have diabetes, it's a it's a win win. Yep. But we're still waiting on the outcome trials, but they're underway. Yeah. When is it a couple of years still though? Right. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Unless they stop it early, and they could with that kind of weight loss, they may see significant difference. That is true. And the new, uh, do you guys see the new guidelines from the uh, European Association of Study Diabetes and ADA? They just published their updated joint guideline in I, the last month. I didn't read through the joint one now. Yeah, it's a joint one, and they've put weight loss way up at the top, hmm. and they actually list either the uh, Wegovy, or- semaglutide, or tizepatide as the preferred for significant weight loss drugs. And then they put liraglutide and deglutide, trulicity, underneath that for weight loss. And they're actually trying to push it and get us to do those things. And they've also changed some of their lifestyle things. Like you can reduce your risk of cardiovascular events by 9% if you add 500 steps a day according to what's in that new guideline. Wow. That's, not 10,500. Yeah, that seems very reasonable. Which nobody should be able not to do. <laughs> and they also say we should shoot for seven hours of sleep a night. Oof. We should get more than six yeah, Mike and is less not, than eight. Mike is not anywhere. Well, he's got a new baby. Yeah, before that, he, wasn't, he still wasn't close <laughs> to that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ward. That's why. <laughs> That's the real reason. Yeah. It's not Sorry. Me, not me being irresponsible. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's the new guideline that just came out. That's great. I need to bring that to my boss. And we like, shouldn't look, sit I have for more than 30 minutes at a time without getting up, moving around. Oh, wow. That's in the guideline. So all these things have been added. And this is endorsed by the ADA and the European Association of Study Diabetes. 30 minutes. I remember the, I guess the rule of thumb before was like 90 minutes 90, or something think, like that. Yeah. 30 now. 30. 30 minutes. Wow. Yep. That's that's quick. That is quick. Imagine your watch reminding you every 30 minutes to get up. I would break this thing. (laughs) (laughs) No, stop it. Yeah. So, I mean, some of that stuff is new. And again, they're putting more emphasis on GLP-1s and SGLT-2s as preferred therapy in combination. But the problem is, how do you pay for them again? Yep. And even with some of the plans... You've got, you can't get them because they're not covered or they're in a separate high copay tier that people can't afford. Yep. Yep. Mm. Come on, FQHCs and other 340B programs. Do better marketing. 
Yep. But then you can't use those in the patients that most of us see. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I mean, we have to, I guess, because I mean, anybody can go to those clinics. I mean, so we just have to get the word out to be more collaborations and <laughs> things of that nature, I guess. I don't know how, how to actually do it, but. It, well, but I guess you get 340B status because of the proportion of underinsured patients that you see. So if all of the high income insured patients start You're going, qualify you might not qualify. And so, you can't yeah. use them in those patients. Right. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. It does feel kind of helpless with the whole Medicare high copay thing because there really is limited options yeah there is hmm. come on congress i tell you what i'm not i'm not putting much faith in having a change in congress making the, <laughs> the changes we need to have made yeah um, or anything else we need done <laughs> <laughs> well all right dr word well i appreciate it so much thank yes. you for coming and hanging out with pleasure. us again thank you. it's always Love what a- you guys do you guys are i'm so proud of both of you for what you're doing and this is a wonderful thing for our profession and for other healthcare providers that prescribe in primary care, keep doing what you're doing, guys. This is a you're a blessing to so so many people. We appreciate uh, it. We appreciate that it's very very much so. And AJ, back in the uh, command booth, we appreciate you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Good we, job, buddy. Yeah, yeah I'm on He's it. back there taking the cameras. I'm, I'm taking notes <laughs> for class when we go back on Tuesday. Yeah, Wednesday. you're gonna you're gonna have a, a head start. Um, and also, too, I want to make sure I thank our sponsor, uh, Pearls.com. AJ, we flipped to my computer screen. Um, if you guys go to www.pearlspyrls.com slash coreconsultrx, you get brought up with this nice screen here that says, Welcome, friends of Core Consults RX. That's you guys. Hit get started, and you can get a free account. And um, if you check it out, you like it, then you can basically uh, upgrade to the the full unlocked account. But even with the free one, you'll get some some downloadable PDF charts and some other good stuff. Um, so they've been our main you know sponsor for the podcast this whole year, and we really appreciate them. So make sure you check them out. And uh, if you want more like lecture style, um, not so much, uh, you know, rabbit trail sort of uh, content um, with PowerPoint slides and all, check out Patreon, patreon.com slash coreconsultrx. You can get uh, all the, the lecture content there uh, with various disease states. And I actually, Cole, you can be proud of me. I just cleaned that up now to where everything's under one specialty that it belongs to instead of just a bunch ah. of room. So now you click on endocrinology, you can go through thyroid and so diabetes. So it's organized and, and easy to navigate. It's the most organized I've ever Amazing. met. Amazing. I guess I, I am very proud. <laughs> Thank I am you. very proud. Yeah. I worked on that the last couple of days, so <laughs> got that done. Um, but yeah, make sure you check that out. Um, if you want to send us an email, you have questions, you can reach us, uh, the email in the show notes, the, any social media platform. You can text the number in the show notes if you want, um, and uh, we'll do our best to get back to you as quick as we can. But thank you guys so much for sticking with us. The episode 200 in the books. Mm-hmm. On to the next one, hopefully. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you next time. Have a great one. Thank you. Bye.